Psalms 118, verse 22 through 26. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. If you would please, Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. And this is several weeks before Jesus entered into Jerusalem for the last time. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See or look, your house is left to you desolate or empty, and assuredly or truly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Jesus, longing to gather his people together. And yet they didn't understand their need to be gathered, their need for his care and his salvation. And so he made a proclamation sort of assessing the situation that, you know, they were not in a position to understand what was going on or to receive him. He said, you will see me one more time. And upon that time, you will cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, little did they know that this stoic people, these very reserved people, very conservative people, would lose their mind the day that Jesus came in riding on a donkey. I mean, something overtook the crowd, and it wasn't just emotion. It was the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God came upon that large number of people, And they began to shout and they began to scream and they were running and they were acting so un-Jewish. They were not acting themselves. They were not behaving as stoic, law-abiding Jewish people. They had lost their mind and gained the mind of God. And they saw Jesus in a different light, but yet I don't know that they fully comprehended what they were beholding. And I think it's that way with us at times. The Spirit of God can move upon our heart anytime, anywhere. And we can begin to sing and worship and thank God. And yet, we behold Him dimly. We see Him in part. We know Him in part. But the part we know and the part we see is we're celebrating. It's worth shouting about. It's worth getting excited over. So we fast forward now to that day that Jesus foretold in Luke's gospel, if you would, chapter 19, where he would enter in to the city of Jerusalem for the last time. The city that did not receive the prophets, stoned the prophets and the messengers that God had sent unto them time and time and time again. Now here comes God's greatest messenger, his only begotten son, and he enters into the city And we're going to pick up in the 37th verse. It says, Now when he was drawing near to the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. 
peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. The number seven is significant in scripture. It means and represents completion and perfection. Something that is done completely perfect. That's the way we would use it in a sentence. We rarely would put words around something in a world that we live in as complete and perfect. But in the case of Christ's work, in the case of what he was going to fulfill and do in this last week of his life, it is synonymous with the number seven. It's complete. It's perfect. Nothing needs to be added to it. It was the work that was given unto him by the Father, and it's something that we need to celebrate. When something is without flaw and it's perfect, then we need to say this is something that we need to identify and celebrate. And so it is with Christ and his work. Everything was done so well in these seven days that it begs humanity to rest, to relax, to not try to add to this. There's no way we can add to this. And heaven forbid we should ever diminish or take anything away from the work of Christ. But may we progressively, as we walk with the Lord, understand the significance of what Jesus was doing and celebrate his commitment to save us from our sins. The penalty of sin, the grip of sin, the bondage of sin, the pull that sin has upon us. Jesus himself would fulfill everything that was written in the law and the prophets in this last week of his life. And what an accomplishment it was. It's noteworthy. It's something that we need to stop and say law and think about. Just pause and the wonder of God's amazing grace that he would send his only begotten son. And oh, what a work his son was committed to. I want to tie something together for a moment about the seven days and the last seven days of Jesus' life and the first seven days of creation and draw a parallel. Scripture says that what the first Adam lost, the second Adam would restore. The second Adam being Jesus. He's, and so the man Christ Jesus came onto the scene to restore that which was lost or to redeem or to purchase back that which was stolen and to put us back into a righteous and a right place with God. So during the formation of the world, we have an account of it in the book of Genesis. God worked very diligently for six days. Each day had its own purpose. And at the end of that day, God waited until the passage of time took place. And the next day, he got busy working again. And he did this for six days. It's a beautiful story in the book of Genesis of how everything that we have and everything that we experience came from this God who cares about us and loves us. At the end of this work, he rested on the seventh day. 
from all of his labor, from all of his work. And he invited man to enjoy the fruit of his labor and the fruit of his work. Jesus, knowing that man had lost everything in the garden that God made that was good and that was right for man to partake of and to enjoy, came to recreate that which was lost. So for this last week of Jesus' life, he is going to work really hard for six days. It is a full, it is a full schedule. We can say that it is a full week of work that he has in front of him. But each day has its own responsibilities. At the end of these six days, Jesus will rest. They'll put his body in a borrowed or a purchased tomb. And on the next day, two days later, he will resurrect. And it will fulfill the promises that God now is dwelling among us. God is dwelling in us. And so what Jesus is entering into is a restoration week. A week where he is bringing everything that was lost in the garden back redemptively towards mankind. So he understands the significance of him entering into Jerusalem for the last time. But Jerusalem really doesn't understand it. And we get it. They understood afterwards. And so it is many times in our life. We don't see God presently working. But when he's done working. And he reveals himself. We're like you were working. You were working. You were doing what needed to be done. You were directing our steps. You were providing You were guiding us. You were protecting us. At the moment, we didn't know it was you. Now, we can see it as you. You brought deliverance to our lives. So as we enter into this week, I pray that all of us, once again, would be captivated by the commitment and the love of our Savior. Also, in the course of this week, Jesus will fulfill the remaining prophetic passages concerning the Messiah, of which there were over 300. And he fulfilled each and every one of them. So I want to invite us all this week to read and to reflect on the last seven days of Jesus' ministry, which would be completed to perfection. You can read in any of the four Gospels. So if you're a note taker or you just have a good memory, I want you to pick one of the four and just begin today. And then just follow the story all the way to the end of that particular gospel. So you can begin in Matthew's gospel, chapter 11, Mark, chapter 11, Luke 19, or John 12. So that's Matthew 11, Mark 11, Luke 19, or John chapter 12. And I pray that as we open up the word of God and we see the triumphal entry, which each and every one of these passages begins with, that we will enter into the scene and the story of God's salvation for mankind, that you'll find a place in each and every scene. And I hope that you recognize when you're reading this, that this is the greatest story in history. There's not a greater or grander story than of God's salvation 
and the culmination of it of Christ coming into the Jerusalem, the city of the king. And that's where it begins. And then we'll follow it through the course of the week. So today we're going to be talking about a full week of work. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be talking about Jesus' desire to protect us from deception. On Friday, we'll gather and we'll remember the seven last words of Christ and partake of communion. Next Sunday, we'll have breakfast. It's awesome. We'll have breakfast together. And then we will gather and celebrate the Lord's resurrection and look forward to his soon return as we baptize those that have put their faith in Christ. It's a wonderful week. So we encourage you to be with us. I also pray that our eyes would be open, that we would see in these passages of Scripture these seven qualities of Jesus Christ. Number one, he was an obedient son. He was a humble servant. He was an anointed Messiah. He was a master teacher. He was a compassionate leader. He was a suffering Savior. He is a victorious Lord. These seven truths are woven in to each and every one of these accounts that make up over 35% of the gospel readings. 35% of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is dedicated to the last seven days of Jesus' life. Yet Jesus had three and a half years of incredible ministry. John even wrote in his gospel that if everything was documented that Jesus did and said, there wouldn't be enough libraries contain all the volumes that would be written. Everywhere he went, amazing teaching, phenomenal healings, great miracles took place. And so everyone would have had their own story to tell. Everyone would have written a book, brought a journal, told what God had done for them. And so we get an opportunity to travel this road, to walk this road, not out of duty or obligation, but out of wonder and awe and inspiration. So as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, it's Passover. Passover is one of seven feasts that God had gathered and called the people of, of Israel to gather and to commemorate and to celebrate. So Passover is the commemoration of God delivering his people from Pharaoh, who is a type of Satan, and, the, and from Egypt, which is a type of the world. And he would accomplish this through the suffering and the sacrifice of a spotless lamb. whose blood would be shed, innocent blood, and it would be put upon the doorpost and the sides of the door. And the blood protected everyone that was in that particular home from the death angel. That was Passover, a time of prosperity, of deliverance, of God's salvation, of God's protection, of God's redemption, but it came at a price. The innocent lamb suffered. I know in our congregation and for those that are watching online, 
It almost seems unjust, doesn't it, that an innocent lamb would suffer for the guilt and the shame of all those who really deserve judgment? Most of us who have pets are endeared to our animals. We love them. They're part of our family. We talk to them like they understand us. We have conversations. I would say that we talk to them sometimes more or more often than we talk to the people in our own home. We greet them. They greet us. We ask them how their day has been, what they've been up to, what their plans are for the future. We, we have, we have great conversations with these animals. We, we protect them and we provide for them and we love them. Everybody who's ever had an experience with 4-H and you take that little newborn calf or goat or pig or duck or bird or whatever you want to do and, and you raise it and it becomes yours. It's, it's something you're proud of. So, Every family in the nation of Israel, all the Hebrew people, had to gather a spotless lamb, an innocent, pure, spotless lamb, and look it in the eyes as they offered and sacrificed it. That animal suffered. That animal had always been handled graciously, delicately, carefully, and now it was going to be offered as a sacrifice and its blood offered up over the doorpost of the homes to protect the people. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus with us. The innocent, spotless, pure Lamb of God. If you looked him in the eye, you said you were going to offer up your blood. We would, we would try to find an alternative route, potentially. But he said, this is the purpose for which I came. This is the reason that I am here. I came to seek and save that which was lost. I came to offer my life so that you could have yours returned unto you. What was lost in the Garden of Eden, I am going to restore unto you. What Adam lost, I am bringing back to you. And it would require his suffering and it would require his sacrifice in order to do this. So the last week of Jesus' life would be very taxing. Most of us have had weeks where we understand the workload almost seems unreasonable. You ever had a week like that? Where you know you have the responsibility to do the work. You can't delegate it. You can't give it to anybody else. It falls squarely on your shoulders. And you're not really that enthusiastic about it. You look forward to it almost with a bemoaning attitude. If you're one that likes to post on social media, you might even put some of your sentiments out for everyone so they could feel sorry for you, take pity on you, say they were going to pray for you, however they communicate with you, say that they like it, You put something bad out on social media, which I I mean, you know, which is like a weight or a burden upon you. And it's interesting. People like put a smiley face or they put a thumbs up. And I'm like, you didn't even interpret the message right. I mean, maybe you should put one with tears or an angry look or a crazy eye look. 
But Jesus, understanding that the responsibility full, fully fell on his shoulders, didn't complain, didn't whine, but found a rhythm in the course of the week to do the will of the Father. He knew he couldn't get ahead of him. Just as in creation, every day would have its own responsibilities. Jesus, in order to redeem us and bring us back to the Father, could not get ahead of him. That's so unlike us. Because during a full week of work, we want to do more than what we should in one day. I'm going to get ahead of it. I'm going to really work hard on Monday so that Tuesday might be a little bit easier. But man, if you're borrowing from Peter to pay Paul, Tuesday's going to come and you might let off the accelerator, but Wednesday is the next day. And if you don't take care of every day's responsibility, you end up begrudging Thursday or Friday potentially because of what you put off earlier in the week. But if you stay in rhythm and you do each day what you can do, sufficient for the day is its own work and own trouble. You try to get ahead of yourself, you're going to get in trouble. You try to give it away or not do it, you're going to get in trouble. You've got to be committed to keep your hand on the plow. And that's what Jesus had to do this last week of his life. He had to keep his hand on the plow. He couldn't let himself become distracted. He couldn't get caught up with the praise. He couldn't get caught up with the criticism. Both which have very strong pulls on us. We love it when people sing our praises, and boy, do we get worked up when they don't. And Jesus was steady. I mean, if you were to take his pulse, they'd be like, dude, that is really good. You have a resting heartbeat. You're at rest. There would be agony that he would experience, but he expressed it in the right way and to his father. There'd be frustration that he encountered from his followers, but he would deal with them gracefully and encourage them to keep growing and keep learning and keep walking. He didn't give up on anyone. It was a taxing week. But in this week, this is something that Jesus teaches us. He teaches us that commitment comes with a cost. Commitment comes with a cost. And in Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, it says, before you go to war, count the cost. Before you build a building, count the cost. Unless you begin the project or you begin to go to war and you don't have the means to finish the building or you don't have the firepower to win the war. So before you enter into these commitments, before you put your hand to the plow, you better understand putting your hand to the plow, you said you're all in. And Jesus was all in for us. And when we ask him to be the Lord of our life and we invite him into that rightful place that only he can occupy, he begins to invade areas of our life where he calls us to commitment. And commitment comes at a cost. It costs us something to be committed. Am I talking to the right crowd? Right? But the grace is sufficient for the commitment. But we have to count the cost. Jesus reminds us that nothing in this life that's worth having comes easily. There's resistance. 
But it's worth the journey and it's worth making the commitment to. Secondly, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit more detail here in a moment. Jesus taught us that staying in step with the Father pays off. That there's a time and a place for everything under heaven. And understanding timing is a huge aspect to being successful in your walk with Christ. He also reminds us to never run from God's call upon our life. Jesus could have bypassed the cross, but he reminds us it was for the cross that he came. He kept his commitment. He understood the importance of timing, and he didn't run from his responsibilities. If we become runners, we'll continue to run. It's not what Jesus wants for us. He wants us to run not from, but run to him. He wants us to run to him and let us experience that he's the everlasting God and he's an ever-present help. He also reminds us to keep a tender heart towards those who oppose us. As you read either in Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, you're going to see there's opposition that Jesus encounters. But Jesus maintained a pliable and an open heart towards those who opposed him. And the third thing he reminds us of is that his house is a place of prayer. And his house now is our body. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we should be vessels of prayer. And that prayer matters. Merchandising is not what's important to God. How much you accumulate, how much you're worth from an economic standpoint or how popular you are, how powerful you are in your position of of employment will all pale in comparison, all pale in comparison to being a person that's committed to the will of the Father and being a person of prayer. So let's talk about timing for a minute. Because to me, one of the greatest aspects of this week, the greatest storylines of this week is that Jesus never misstepped. And as I said, we do funny things with time. Somehow we think that we govern or control time. We say things like, I'll make time for that, as if we created it. (laughs) Or we say, I don't have time for that. There's a lot of unique and, and sort of, I think, funny phrases that we say when it comes to time. And what we need to say is what the psalmist says, which is really a prayer, is that my times are in your hands, O God. Because time is something that God equally distributes to all of us without exception. It's, it's one of the great common denominators with mankind. And yet you hear people constantly blaming time for things, a lack of time. I wish I had more time. And all of these things really sort of get us out of step, get us off timing, get us out of timing. And have you ever been off? Like, feels like every step you take, it's like, I shouldn't keep taking another step. And you take another step. You said, I really shouldn't be doing this. And you keep doing it. And the timing is wrong. Timing has everything to do with, with growth, with development, with maturity, with discernment, with understanding. It, it, is, it is a common denominator with all of that. 
for people that are investors and, and uh, are involved in the financial world, timing is everything. An investment properly placed in the right season at the right time brings great dividends. And one that's done impulsively or incorrectly, when I say incorrectly, be for the wrong motives or the wrong reasons, to consume things of our own lust, to, to try to get ahead or to try to prove someone that we really, we really you know, are in charge, always end up costing us. Timing is important in sports, a team working together in a coordinated effort. Timing is, is very important in the aspect of every aspect of life. When you build in buffers with time, you build in opportunities to relieve stress. If everything is this tight in your life, then something is going to break. You go from this to this to this to this to this, and you can't even process where you're going next. You just know you have to be there by this time or things aren't going to happen the way that we expect them to happen or have already preconceived in our mind they should happen. Preconceived ideas, anyone have those? Anyone given over to analytics you like? All of the numbers, all the facts, and then from there you figure it out. But if your steps aren't ordered by the Lord, then you could really be out of place and out of position in regards to experiencing his best. Now, his mercy endures forever, and we can redeem time. That's a promise that God will help us to redeem time. So if you feel like you've taken several steps in the wrong direction, don't worry. Just cry out to God, and he has a way of redeeming time, buying it back, and giving you another opportunity. But he does that for those that realize they've taken a step out of his timing. People that do things prematurely. I, I, I've seen people make premature decisions as a pastor for over 35 years. Get the cart in front of the horse. Get their emotions all worked up and just impulsively do something. And, and I've seen it time and time again, you know, be costly to them. But I've seen God restore. I've seen God renew. I've seen God be faithful to those that realize, God, forgive me. I got out of step. I got out of time. Making commitments prematurely without counting the cost is something that we all have to be careful of. There's nothing wrong with saying to someone, let me think about that. Let me pray about that. When you feel pressure or I feel pressure to make a decision right now, right now is not always the right timing to make a decision. Um, occasionally, Charlene and I will go on a date to Sam's Club. You know, the best, cheapest quarter pound hot dog in the world. So, you know all joking aside, which that it really is a joke. But it's amazing when you're walking through there, if they have different vendors or different representatives, um, how appealing their sales pitch is. And you feel obligated to try everything that they're, you know, 
offering as a sample. After all, it's just a sample. And instead of just saying, you know, no, thank you, I'll pass on that. I'll give you another personal example, and then we'll tie all of this into the timing of Jesus and why we should just say, Lord, help me with mine. So I have a golf cart. I like my golf cart. It's pretty. And I haven't decided at this point in time what I'm necessarily going to do with my golf cart this year in regards to playing golf. I may just make it street legal and drive it around because I can do that here in the city of Knoxville. Just pay $100 worth of insurance and get a yellow flag and put a little sticker on it and drive around like it's nationals all the time. No big deal. Just drive around town. Save money. You know, it'd be an economic decision. But it's interesting. The other day I was at Walmart and walking through Walmart, I located someone in town and their business is to restore, refurbish, or to purchase golf carts. And so I started to have a conversation with him. From that conversation, the next thing that I knew, because he is such a good communicator and so convincing, we would say that he's a salesman, that we were over looking at my golf cart and considering trading my golf cart for an upgrade And all I would have to do is give him mine plus $1,200 and I could have an upgrade. And I haven't even decided the most primary purpose for a golf cart. And that's the golf. (laughs) And you feel that pull like, yeah, it's newer. It's the president's edition. It's got cushy seats. It has its own ball washer. It's got mirror on it. That if I wanted to take it on the street, I could take it on the street. And I could actually say I'm somewhat safe even though I don't have a seatbelt and could get killed instantly if a car hits me. All of these things have a way of throwing us off time. The first decision I need to make is, am I going to golf? It's that way with us. Shiny, new, pretty, better. This will make my life so much, the quality of my life will be so much better. Until next year's model comes out. Pastor Drew referred to that with the iPhone. Give me a break. I have to say it real slow so I don't get real angry. The only thing that's new about the iPhone 13 is the camera. Right? Boy, it's a good one. I know it is. And they tell you, you can sit anywhere. You could go to a, a stadium. It's baseball season. You can sit in the nosebleed section and you can count. You can count the sweat beads on the guy pitching. Really? That's maybe a little bit too much information. I don't know if I need to know that. But we're intrigued with bigger and better and shinier and new and Somehow it pulls us away from contentment and gratefulness and gratitude and timing. It pulls us away from acknowledging God to, well, God, would you mind if I get that? It's fun how we bring him into our missteps. 
Seems like a good deal to me. I'll tell you how far this conversation went, just to show that all of us are susceptible, susceptible to this, this vacuum that pulls on us. So somewhere in the course of the conversation, I asked him, I said, okay, what if you just wanted to buy my golf cart? Let's just say I don't want to golf. I don't want to golf except for when I want to golf. And uh, how much would you give me for my golf cart? He said, well, I can't tell you a price for your stuff. I said, that's what you do. You tell me a price for your stuff and I say yes or no. He says, oh, no, I could never do that. It's your stuff. What do you need for it? What would I need for it? Well, I know what I bought it for. So I'm thinking, what do I need? What do I need? What do I need? I don't even know I need anything. And I said, well, what if I traded it, traded it, right? You're selling yours for what? He said, 6500 I'm selling you this upgrade. For, you know, it's worth 6500 if I was to sell it. And I thought to myself, that's in a crazy amount of money, right? But then he told me this. You can trade yours for mine, and I'll sell it to you for 1200 So he's telling me that my golf cart is worth $5,300. Are you tracking with me, right? But I said, what would you give me for it? And well, I don't, what do you need? I said, okay. I threw a number to him. I said, what if you give me 3000 He said, that's what I was thinking. Well, of course it's what he was thinking. Because <laughs> he knows what he can turn around and do with it, right? So I'm, I'm now a little bit more aware of what's going on. But where I went with it was not necessarily easy for Charlene. I call Charlene. Deling, deling, deling. Like call a millionaire. Hey, call a friend. Hey, yeah, Charlene. Here's a question. All right. I've got an opportunity. Now, remember, before I started this little bunny trail, I said how we bring God in on this. Looks like the Lord might be blessing us getting another golf cart. <laughs> how, how's, how's that, Doug? Well, it's a, it's a better, shinier, it's the president one, and, uh, and we, we can even go test drive it and drive it around and see, and it's smoother. You know, mine's a little rough. It's got heavy-duty springs, et cetera. And, and, well, what's the deal? So I told her the deal, and I said, you know, I mean, like, here's how I spin it. Well, if I don't like it, I could sell it and still make money. If I buy it, I bought it right. So I could turn around and sell it. Now, every step that I'm taking in this whole conversation, I feel like I'm getting more and more and more and more away from what I really ought to be doing. And that is just to say, I got a golf cart. I just have to decide if I'm going to golf. You ever been pulled off course, distracted, entered into somebody else's sales? It, it, it's just... So easy to do. Listen, not Jesus. Set his face like flint to Jerusalem, knowing everything that would unfold in that last seven days. This is a full week of work. Didn't miss a step. Didn't get pulled off course. Didn't let praise puff his head up. And didn't let criticism deflate his balloon. He was just steady, steadfast, immovable. He was always abounding in the work of the Lord. And by his spirit, he helps us. Finish up my golf story illustration. You like this, don't you? Yeah, pastor's really funny. Yeah, you ought to come and hang around with me for a day or two. You think funny, haha. All right, so Charlene and I 
my California queen, go out on Friday. It was not even warm. And drive golf carts around. I said, let's just go and just drive it around and see. So we went and drove the one that was the upgrade, and it was okay. And then we went over and pulled mine out of the shed and drove it around. And at the end of driving them around, she says, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to keep what I got. But how many times have I maybe substituted what I got for what I thought was something better? And all it did was get me to the place that I hit the golf ball. That was it. My two legs can do that. My two legs can walk me to the place that I hit the golf ball. There's a lot of different opportunities or options. So in this last week of Jesus' life, this is how significant timing is. Everything was done perfectly, completely. It fulfilled the number seven. And God restored us unto himself. So how many mistakes have we made in life because we're unwilling to wait for God's perfect timing? Choosing rather to rush in and do it our way. Satan is always trying to push us and pull on the flesh to get us to act impulsively while the Holy Spirit is always encouraging us to slow down. Sufficient for today is its own issues. Don't let your wheels go round and round in your mind. Today is a good day. This is the day the Lord has made. A day of salvation, redemption, of celebration. And that's what we need to remember. That our times are in his hands. And slowing down keeps us in step with the spirit. Stepping back sometimes and looking at the bigger picture keeps us in step with the spirit. So God's timing was perfect. Jesus Entered in to Jerusalem perfectly. He died on Passover. He was in the tomb on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He was raised from the dead at the Feast of the First Fruits of Barley Harvest. And the Holy Spirit was sent, therefore, on the day of Pentecost. Jesus did this not for himself. He did this for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged or inspired you to God's best. If you have any questions about today's message, need prayer, or would like to learn more about Living Word Fellowship, please call 641-828-7119 or visit us at lwfknoxville.com.